the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You are listening to the Advanced Colorado Rundown, Colorado's conservative podcast, providing insight and thought-provoking discussions on Colorado's most critical policy issues. Let's join Michael Fields for today's edition. We are back with another edition of the Advanced Colorado Rundown. I am Michael Fields, and today we are joined by by Dan Rubenstein, the district attorney for the 21st Judicial District. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I know that you uh, have been a part of the Colorado Commission on uh, Criminal and Juvenile Justice for several years now. Um, And, you know, there's been a few, the last couple of years, a few letters that the governor has sent to uh, the Sentencing Reform Task Force. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about that Sentencing Reform Task Force, what you guys have been working on? Yeah, so let let me back up first and just kind of explain the commission. Um, It was formed when Governor Ritter was uh, was in office. And, you know, he prior to being the governor of Colorado was the Denver D.A., and so he recognized the importance of having the proper stakeholders at the table, uh, forming legislative uh, ideas rather than having the legislature, some of whom don't know anything about criminal law. Um, uh, we started off uh, having CDAC, the Colorado District Attorney's Council, um, had a legislative committee that I was part of where we would give assistance in drafting, but it wasn't really policy. And that was more just to make sure that the the way legislation was drafted used the same terms that we already used in legislation, that the elements of a crime made sense and something that we could, you know, fit into our current structure. As we got into CCJJ, it was really a way to get some defense bar representatives, some prosecutors, the head of DOC, head of probation, um, you know, victims groups, uh, a police chief, a sheriff, and, you know, all the different stakeholders at the table to start coming up with policy. And um, as we've moved forward from uh, Governor Ritter, you know, through Governor Hickenlooper, now to Governor Polis, we've uh, we've seen this evolve to a point where each uh, every other year the governor writes a letter to the CCJJ saying, "This is what I'd like you to tackle," uh, you know, over these next couple of legislative sessions. Um, over the years, that's gone from drug reform. Uh, and, you know, creating the drug felonies rather than just general felony classes. And now we're uh, really working on sentencing uh, and some of the you know complexities of sentencing. One of the first things we did as part of the uh, sentencing reform task force, which is a sub a subcommittee of the CCJJ, was to do a listening tour and go to all the different groups and kind of find out what it is they want us to uh, want us to tackle. And overwhelmingly, what they wanted us to look at was certainty and sentencing. Um, oftentimes we would have people say truth and sentencing, and we're trying to move away from the truth and sentencing, um, tagline, because I don't think we'll ever get there. Uh, the way, the way department of corrections controls behavior is to be able to have some good time or earn time based upon uh, good conduct. And so like the federal system, for example, you know, you serve 85% um, of your sentence, but you can earn down from a hundred down to 85 by good behavior or engaging in classes. 
Uh, so we were really looking for certainty in sentencing. And we heard that from the victims groups uh, that said, you re-victimize the victims every time you have another parole hearing and they have to go in and explain why somebody should stay in. We heard that from the offender group saying, we just want to know when we're getting out. You keep moving the target on us and we don't know when it's going to be and how to plan and what to do. Uh, and then we hear it from the public, of course, as well, um, who are sort of shocked and in awe that Colorado's system has these 50% crimes and 75% crimes um, where the day you walk in on an eight-year sentence, it gets cut down to four on good time, and then you can earn it from four down to three on earned time. And so, you know, pretty much everyone said the same thing. And uh, we worked on that for probably a year and a half. And ultimately, there was not the political will to get that done. And what I, what I mean by that is um, we, we knew we couldn't skyrocket the prison population um, if you get an eight-year sentence, and that really means a four-year sentence, we can't come to a certainty in sentencing by saying, okay, eight years actually means seven years, and now everybody who was serving three or four is now going to serve seven or eight. Um, and so we had to adjust that number, which came with a big sticker shock, as we referred to it, uh, which is that means we have to cut the sentences in half. Um, yeah, so. That makes sense. I, I guess my question um, in looking at your work, your guys work in general, you have to balance kind of fairness and consistency over a long period of time uh, with being responsive to certain crimes that could be happening. And, and looking at that letter that Governor Polis wrote in 2022, there was a large focus on auto thefts, for example, because we've seen uh, that skyrocket. I guess when you as a, as a member of this task force are thinking about it, how do you balance those two things to say, you know, if you stole a car five years ago or you steal a car now, um, but also know that certain crimes are going up, maybe because of the sentencing and penalty, uh, how do you factor that in? Yeah, so, you know, there's there's a smaller subgroup of the Sentencing Reform Task Force that uh, is uh, made up of three prosecutors and two defense attorneys, and we have a lot of debate on that, uh, on those things. And, and that balance really is a balance of trying to figure out how to be responsive to what the issues of the day are, mm -hmm. uh, but also recognize that with issues of the day, sometimes um, there is legislation that is just merely responsive to a single case or, you know, um, for example, the trucker case that was in Jefferson County, uh, where the trucker, you know, was charged with extreme indifference murder, attempted extreme indifference murder, uh, and the governor ended up commuting the sentence, and that was not a good outcome. We want the system to be able to do what it needs to do on its own. Uh, but we also don't want it to just be because of one case. And so we recognize there is a huge auto theft problem. And we do have legislation that CCJJ has pushed forward that will uh, be voted on this session. We think it's uh, going to have overwhelming support. Um, one of the things that we discussed in that group um, was that our current structure for auto theft, for example, uh, is uh, is related to the value of the car. And that's the same with, with most other theft crimes the higher the value of the item you steal, the more serious the crime is. Well, if you think about it from a victim's perspective, the victim who has a car that's only worth $2,000 is probably in a situation where they're going to be more impacted by right. the person who has a car that's worth $60,000. For example, in my household, I have a car, my wife has a car, my 18-year-old son has a car, and my daughter who lives across town has a car. If my car gets stolen, I will be just fine. Yeah. Uh, but the guy who's, you know, maybe the family who has only one car worth a couple thousand dollars is going to be very much impacted. And so we have gotten rid of value uh, in auto theft and focused on what what really do we want to enhance it uh, for? What do we want to make it more serious? And so, for example, if you steal a car to commit some other crime or you commit a felony eluding with the car, and that's a very high risk to community. 
so we, we're really trying to be responsive to what problems are we trying to solve and how do we restructure that? And it's a, it's an interesting debate with three prosecutors and two defense attorneys sitting in a room coming to consensus on good policy. Yeah, I bet. And, and I'm glad to see that change because you're right. Somebody who has a lower dollar value car, it has a, you know, a, a bigger impact, actually. So uh, I'm glad to see that. I think the, the question I have is with your relationships with legislators, obviously, you know, as a task force, you're recommending stuff. The governor kind of gives you uh, some feedback and what to look at. Then you guys recommend stuff. You have to work with legislator, legislators. How is that relationship? And, you know, when you guys recommend stuff, does it normally get through the legislature because you do have this balance between all these different, you know, DAs and, and sheriffs and, and victim advocates, et cetera? Does it tend to have bipartisan support and get through when you guys recommend something? It does. Um, there, there is some gamesmanship, I would say, we do with uh, making sure that we draft a tight bill title in Colorado. Um, if something doesn't fall under the bill title, then it's not permitted to be an amendment. Uh, so we've uh, realized that if we craft a bill title to say to adopt um, the CCJJ recommendation, then they can't modify it to something that CCJJ didn't approve. Uh, and so, you know, we try to have the debates occur at the CCJJ level of stakeholders that really understand the criminal justice impacts to any modification, um, rather than a legislator that might be just, you know, responding to a call from a constituent and not understanding that an amendment is going to, you know, throw the whole thing off track. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we do a lot of stakeholder engagement. And we do a lot of legislator engagement to, to make sure that, that these are things that they will be, you know, proud to, proud to get through. Some of the more interesting debates we've had coming out of CCJJ um, at the last session, there was a lot of changes to possession of a weapon by a previous offender. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a West Slope prosecutor, and as a West Slope prosecutor, I'm a big Second Amendment guy. And to me, I don't think you should lose your right to defend yourself or to uh, go hunting because you committed a property crime mm-hmm. um, if it's not a public safety risk. And so it was an interesting uh, dynamic where the Second Amendment people like myself are teaming up with the defense bar who are trying to make fewer things a crime. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we've got some some Republican DAs on the front range like uh, like uh, John Kellner in, in Arapahoe County, who's got a huge auto theft problem and wants to have people precluded from uh, possessing a firearm if they commit an auto theft. And yeah, no, I guess, I how do you it. balance how do you balance the different uh areas of the state? You were just talking about that in, in one way, but saying, you know what, in some areas, certain crime is going to be uh, much more prevalent on the front range versus the western slope. Uh, you know, the, the stuff that you're dealing with, whether it's drugs or other things, are, are gonna be different, but you have to have consistent laws, uh, you know, state laws across the board. Uh does that just factor in in that, you know, everybody has a, a stakeholder, uh, you know, is able to talk about their experience in the different areas of the state to come up with the best uh outcome is that is that kind of how it works yeah that's a that's a great question what ends up happening is um me and the few other da's that are involved with the ccjj uh recognize that there are areas where we have to leave um legislation more broad so that it can be implemented in different ways around the state we always try to make sure that different people uh, similarly situated people are treated similarly across the state uh, but Colorado has done an amazing thing, which is to create independently elected DAs uh, in each jurisdiction. And so, you know, it's not county by county. There's 64 counties, currently 22 judicial districts. We're about to add a 23rd because Arapahoe and Douglas are splitting up. Uh, but, um, you know, the benefit of that is justice in Boulder may look very different than justice in Grand Junction. And, you know, what we believe is 
what we believe is okay here or not okay here might be very different than how they believe in Boulder. And that's why they've independently elected their DA theirs to implement what, what he believes their community values. So on the legislative side, we try to identify those areas, make the legislation broad enough um, that we can have a community-based standard for, for each jurisdiction. You talked about uh, auto theft earlier, some of the other crimes, and you know earlier on in the work that you all did was on uh, drug drug sentencing reform. Uh, I guess you know the last couple of years we have seen a huge spike in in fentanyl uh, deaths and, and fentanyl usage in our state, and you've seen legislation uh, go back and forth on that. I guess how are you all looking at that issue, or you know is this again one where a certain drug is a huge problem? Other ones, uh, you know, needed that reform to lower some of the sentences. I guess, what is the thought process as you guys look at at drugs and and specifically fentanyl? Yeah, there's a lot of debate around that. Um, Where I see drugs going um, in America is we're going to be moving more towards the synthetics uh, like fentanyl. And the reality is, is in order to create heroin, you have to have huge poppy fields and all sorts of space and time uh, to grow it. And, and, you know, from, from the second you put that seed in the ground, you might have risk. Fentanyl can be manufactured in a lab in a very small place. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it has similar effects. So I, I see us headed towards more dangerous drugs that are more um, lab created uh, as we go over time. Uh, you know, mar- marijuana seems to be one that is probably the exception because America is loosening its uh, reins on marijuana, but everything else I think is going to move towards those synthetics that are more dangerous. We're trying to identify uh, what do you do with the fentanyl addict and how do we make sure that we're solving the underlying problem? Because I'm not sure how many people really actually care if somebody uses drugs in their own house and doesn't hurt anybody. I think the problem is, is that those drugs that are so addictive tend to result in other crimes, but we ultimately want to treat the underlying addiction so that you're not committing the auto theft. As far as the dealers, that's a very different thing. And we're trying to stiffen the penalties. One interesting thing that we did last year is we created the crime for distribution resulting in death, which the feds had, but Colorado did not have a good version. And CDAC, my our statewide organization, um, does have a bill going through that was in committee yesterday um, to broaden the distribution resulting in death to more drugs than just fentanyl, because a very difficult conversation for a DA to have with a family um, of somebody who just died to say, oh, I'm sorry, your son doesn't count because he died of a meth overdose instead of a fentanyl overdose. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I did see that bill uh, is going through the legislature right now. I think uh, a broader question, and I would encourage people to go and look at the two letters that uh, Jared Polis has sent uh, to the CCJJ uh, in 2020 and in 2022. I think the thing that I noticed the most was kind of a shift from you know, this discussion about sentencing recalibration to this talk about being one of the top 10 safest states and the rise in crime and responding to that. I guess, have you seen that shift and, and has it shifted the work uh, that your committee has been doing? And just looking at the stats overall in Colorado, there's no doubt that they're up. Uh, and you have seen this kind of, you know, criminal justice reform uh, 2020 talk, uh, you know, turn into we need to get uh, you know, and address this rise on crime. Have you seen that shift as a DA and as a member of this committee? Yeah, absolutely. It's It's been interesting to watch because Colorado has become increasingly more of a blue state and the legislators seem to be increasingly in favor of justice reform uh, involving lessening of penalties. But as we've seen this happen, we've seen a huge spike in crime rate. 
Some of that, I think, may be associated with some of the changes, although probably realistically not most of them. Most of them are more associated with, I think, the pandemic, decreased ability to enforce laws because of law enforcement not wanting to insert themselves into anything that wasn't responsive to a 911 call. And once the criminal element realizes that there's no enforcement out there, they kind of run amok. And we're just starting to get get that back under control um, but there's no question that the legislators and the governor seem to be responsive to community outcry of increased crime rate. And there was a definite change. Um, previously, he was not asking for strengthened um, criminal justice laws. He was asking for more, more, um, you know, uh, sentencing ranges going down. And now he seems to be looking at, well, you know, he, he, he requested and wanted to do something with fentanyl. Uh, he requested and wanted to do something with auto theft. Uh, one of the big things that we're working on now actually is there's a huge push across the country for second look legislation, which is for people who are in prison for lengthy sentences to be able to have a, another sentencing hearing down the road. Um, I am generally not a fan of those for victim crimes. Um, I get it on a drug crime. You get somebody, uh, you know, a 36 year sentence when they're 25 years old and maybe they're 40 and they're a very different person and they've, you know, They've changed and we, we can relook at them and decide if that's okay. You're not re-victimizing anybody to go back and look at that case again. But on a you know a homicide or a you know vehicular homicide, anything where you've got a victim family that has to relive all this stuff, it's very difficult, but it's a wave that's going across the country. And so we are getting a lot of push for that. And we have agreed to uh, recommend this time on a habitual criminal, which is one of the things the governor asked us to look at. Um, that if there's a sentence of 24 years or longer, then after 10 calendar years, you get a one-time only um, chance to reconsider the sentence to determine if you've, you know, really changed. Um, yeah, so I think that's an interesting discussion. And as I talk to people uh, about, you know, criminal justice issues in our in our state, I think one thing that that pops up is a discussion that you know, we're the fourth worst when it comes to re- recidivism rates. And I guess if you have any, do you have any thoughts about? why that's the case, how that factors into this larger discussion of, you know, we don't want people, you know, who have changed 20 years later and are a different person uh, to be locked up forever. But in the other in the other side of it, that we do have a high recidivism rate. And so putting people back, uh, you know, sooner than uh, maybe justice would would provide, then they could be reoffending. And we have seen that in certain cases. So I guess uh, my last question is, how do you balance that, you know, the recidivism numbers with the, the reform talk that's going on? Yeah, so our recidivism is pretty poor. Um, I, you know, I'm conflicted on that because sometimes I feel like part of the reason our recidivism is so poor is because we wait so long and give people so many chances that by the time they actually go to prison, they're kind of a mess. Uh, if, if you look at the percentage, this is an interesting stat, the percentage of a sentence served on a crime of violence, which is a 75% crime, is actually lower than the percentage served on non-crime of violence. And I think the reason is, is because if you go to prison on a crime of violence, it might be a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. You committed one violent offense, maybe a second-degree assault, a first-degree assault, but in general, you're not a complete wreck as a person. If you're going to prison on non-violent crimes, you've probably been given a lot of chances and you're probably kind of a mess and you're not getting paroled because you can't pull it together. And so, you know, what, what are we going to do with these people? You know, there, there's no great answer. What, you know, we need to have a good parole system that transitions people out well. We need to have incentives in the Department of Corrections for higher education and other things that will give people 
um, you know, a solid work base when they get out and some reason to look forward. Um, so, you know, uh, certainly for, for those, for those situations, I think the best, the best way to decrease recidivism is to give people work incentives and give people a life when they get out. Um, you're right. We don't, we don't want to have people sit languishing in there forever once we've kind of fixed them. I mean, obviously, you know, on, on VRA crimes, victims crimes, we need to be balancing, you know, how does the victim feel about the justice they're getting from this? Uh, but uh, there was a bill actually that's going through this session that I supported, uh, which is to allow early release for people who uh, get a college degree, a little bit, I think it's a year for a college degree, 18 months for a master's and two years for a doctorate. Um, and then six months, I think, for for like a trade certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, but all those things, I mean, if we can, you know, pay for that by decreasing the cost of Department of Corrections, pay for their education, and then give them something when they get out, that's a great program. Yeah, no, and I think, uh, you know, this has been great information. I would also encourage people, the Department of Corrections just put out their annual report, uh, which has a lot of stats on on crimes, on sentencing, on when people get out, which I think is just good background information for anybody interested in uh, these issues. So I, I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, would love to have you back on as, uh, you know, more things come out of the task force, more recommendations come out. I think it's an important part of the process and glad that there are uh, people kind of across the spectrum who are able to weigh in on these issues. So again, thanks for joining us and uh, would love to have you back on. All right. Sounds great. Thanks for having me again. Thanks. So this has been another episode of the Advanced Colorado Rundown. Thanks for joining You've been listening to the Advanced Colorado Rundown, brought to you by Advanced Colorado, the conservative thought leader, driving dialogue and solutions to Colorado's most critical policy issues. Find them at advancecolorado.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.